Syrian interest with little relevance for today. They're not at all. They represent and they reflect churches and their members around the world and down the ages. These seven churches act as mirrors, reflecting millions and millions of Christians and their churches throughout history. What is said in these letters is for all churches and all church people in every generation. These letters have abiding value. He who has an ear, in verse 6, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. That is all seven of them. So, let's never think that some of these letters don't apply to us, to our church, to this church, to every church. All the letters need to be heard by everyone. First heading, then, is the reality, the reality that was the church at Sardis. In Sardis, in this church, there was a majority, and there was a minority. The majority are the people to whom the letter is being addressed. There was also a minority, and they're referred to in verse 4. Yet you have a few people, minority, in Sardis, who've not soiled their clothes. But the church is defined by this majority of people who, it is implied, had soiled their clothes. And the letter gives us at least six facts about this majority in that congregation. First one is that they had a good reputation in the city. You have, verse 1, a reputation of being alive. The word reputation is not a hard one for us to understand. We use it in a variety of contexts. We use it, for example, in the school context. I'm certainly not. It would be invidious to mention particular schools in Plymouth, but you know the kind of conversations we have. If you arrive in Plymouth, and maybe you've got young children, you're thinking, where are they going to go to school? You, you, look at, you look at the internet, you see league tables, but you also chat to people at church and people who are neighbors, and you ask about schools, primary schools maybe, secondary schools maybe. Uh, we want to know, what, what schools have a, a good reputation? I always hear that word, reputation, mentioned in that connection, but I'm not going to mention any particular primary or secondary schools in that connection right now. These people, they had a good reputation as a church, a reputation for being alive. The pagan people of Sardis, the world around, they saw the publicity, they saw all the activities go on, going on, they saw how the church was well kept, they saw money being given, money being spent, and so on. And they said to, looking on this, they said, here's a lively church. Secondly, people outside the church, whether Jews or pagan Gentiles, they didn't attack this church. There's no report of physical attacks or of verbal attacks. The pagan people of Sardis weren't calling these people bigots or intolerant. Godly Christians were at this time being called haters of the human race in different places, and this was for not joining in the pagan activities that involved the worship of idols or the worship of the emperor, the Caesar, uh, for saying that sexual orgies were not good things, for saying that Christ was the only way. People got a lot of flack. They got a hard time. But at Sardis, we don't read of any opposition. Remember that for later. Third fact, while the world saw this church as a lively institution, verse 2b, in the sight of my God, as God sees things, it was very different. And the risen Jesus Christ did not see life. He saw 
death. Look at verse 1 again. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, these are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. These words make this perhaps the most damning of all those seven letters to the churches in Revelation 2 and Revelation 3. Even Laodicea, as we'll see on a later Sunday, seems to receive less criticism. Just think about it. To be pronounced dead by the risen and reigning Jesus Christ, that's terrifying, I think you'll agree. So, what was wrong with this church? Well, fourth fact. The risen Jesus, verse 1, said, I know your deeds. So, the deeds he knew were largely signs of death and not life. If we ask, what are the signs of life that were missing in Sardis? If we look back to chapter 2 at the beginning, the church in Ephesus, where he says, I know your deeds, your hard work, your perseverance. You cannot tolerate wicked men. You've tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You've persevered. You've endured hardships for my name, and you've not grown weary. These are deeds that Christ approves of. Then look on to chapter 2, verse 19, in the church in Thyatira. I know your deeds, your love, your faith, your perseverance, your service, and that you're doing more than you did at first. You're doing now more than you did at first. These two were deeds that Christ approved of, but they were missing at Sardis. We don't hear anything about their concern for sound teaching or for Christ-likeness. It looks as though the church in Sardis unlike the church in Ephesus, was tolerating doctrinally false teaching and morally wicked people. And it looks as though that that faith, love, perseverance, service seen in Thyatira was absent from the lives of this majority of the congregation in Sardis. The deeds in Sardis were not complete. In verse 2, Christ says, I've not found your deeds complete there were things that were missing. No doubt also, as always with false teaching and wrong pastoral practice, they were half right, but missing the other half, half right is very wrong. Classically, in false teaching, you have an emphasis on one truth to the exclusion of another vital truth. For example, some say that the Bible is a human book, and that's true. And they say, we mustn't ignore the different styles and the different genre that we find in the Bible. And that's absolutely true. Of course we shouldn't. But to stop there is very wrong. The Bible, as well as being human, is divine and quite unique. I've got a whole long bit there from the Baptist Confession of 1689, and I'm going to skip that in the interest of time. If you want to see it all about the Holy Scripture and how important it is to ask me afterwards. With many things, you have to assert more than one truth, otherwise you're in error. So, for example, there's the Bible, or think about Jesus Himself. Jesus is fully God, but also fully human. We have to hold those two things at the same time. We have to hold them together. Think about God, one God, but three persons, not to assert both that God is one and that He is three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that leads to serious errors. But this majority in Sardis, maybe like some people today, they only 
taught or practiced half the truth. Here's another example. We hear a lot, and we love to hear a lot about grace, about God's amazing grace. We sing, we love to sing about God's amazing grace. That's absolutely right, vitally necessary. But if people aren't careful what they mean by grace, it can actually become, quote-unquote, cheap grace. That's a famous phrase of a German pastor called Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a Christian who was martyred, executed in 1945 for his opposition to Hitler. You might have heard the phrase before, cheap grace. Bonhoeffer goes on, cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. One Anglican bishop, now retired, put it this way, the price to be paid in maintaining a peaceful church with a lively reputation is often a gospel without content. And there are people around today who are very happy to teach about the love of God, but never about God's judgment, about heaven, but never about hell, about faith, but never about works as evidence of faith. And yes, the final word is about God's grace and love. We must be encouraging and not discouraging, but God's grace and love are proved through the cross of Christ. God so hates sin that a penalty had to be paid. Mysteriously and amazingly, Christ Himself bore that penalty for you and me. That's the measure of God's grace and love. It's certainly not cheap grace or cheap love. At Sardis, then, it's likely that the majority focused only on a portion of Christian doctrine and Christian morals. They weren't complete, said Jesus. Theirs were sins of omission. That's the fourth fact. Fifthly, though, there was also, tragically, a positive engagement with evil by this majority in Sardis. There were sins of commission as well as omission. Look on to verse 4. And that reference to a few people who have not soiled their clothes. Someone has referred to that phrase as divine shorthand, a metaphor for impurity in doctrine and behavior. There's a clear implication that the majority of the congregation had soiled their clothes, were positively impure. They were compromising with the pagan world around. This church in Sardis was a worldly church. No wonder they had a good reputation with the people of Sardis. Perhaps sometimes we need to beware such reputations. Jesus said in His earthly ministry, "'Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for that is how their fathers treated the false prophets.'" So, if you go with the flow, Instead of teaching the forgiveness of all sins, you start to deny sin, deny the difficult truths of the Christian faith. You start to deny that Christ is the only way, that the virgin conception of Jesus did not happen, that the tomb was not empty that first Easter morning. If you start redefining things that the Bible tells us are sin as not sin and something to be celebrated, that's, that's not a good road to be, be on. 
You say that the Holy Spirit is leading us into new truths. You say that we know better than the Bible now. That's not good news. You will be popular with some people, maybe with a lot of people, because compromise is easy, and it leads to the applause of the crowd. It may lead to a quiet life, but finally, the sixth fact regarding the church in Sardis that we've come to in Revelation this evening is this, the quiet life that comes from compromising God's Word and God's standards does not last forever. Verse 3b, if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. He seems to be referring there not to his return, but to a judgment in this time now, in this age, not in eternity. Because compromising churches can only last for so long. A famous study was written by a chap called Dean Kelly called Why Conservative Churches Are Growing. He says the sociological facts are that in the short term, churches that deny the apostolic faith get publicity. They seem to be alive, but before long, they die. If all the people get at church, it's what they can hear better on the radio or the TV, and we might nowadays say the internet as well. Well, why go to church and sit on uncomfortable pews? And I interject here, or hopefully not too uncomfortable, plastic chairs or metal chairs down here in the hall. Compromising Christians can only last for so long, spiritually speaking. Well, the majority of these Christians in Sardis were spiritually just alive, but only just still alive. They were, so to speak, on a spiritual life support system. They weren't fully dead. The spiritual oxygen had not yet been turned off. Verse 2 speaks of what remains and is about to die. So, death is imminent if nothing happens. But this letter is written not so that people will die, but so that something will happen and they will truly live, which brings us to our second and final heading how to revive a dead church. Jesus gives us some very, very important teaching here. First of all, heed Christ's commands. Here are the commands in this letter. One, wake up! So important for compromising Christians. It's the failure to wake up that brings Christ's judgment. In verse 3, if you do not wake up, I'll come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Sardis was built on a mountain and had an acropolis that was thought to be impregnable. But in its history, twice the city fell to invaders through an inadequate watch being kept. Now, in today's army, you won't be put up against a wall and shot for falling asleep on sentry duty, but it's still a very, very serious offense. I can remember once as an officer cadet in the officer's training corps uh, up in Scotland being on exercise, and we've been up the whole day, then up the whole night, and then this is part of the way through the next day, so I'm feeling dog-tired, and I'm lying down on my front behind a weapon, uh, and we're all spread out all around defense and so on, uh, and a young officer who I later served with in, in the real army uh, came round, and I was just on the point of dropping off, uh, and he said to me, and of course, it's, it's fairly kind of straightforward man's mind, McCulloch, are you sleeping? <laughs> and uh, I said, I don't know, sir. <laughs> I was just about to sleep, but not quite. 
uh, one of the things to do sometimes. I never quite resorted to this. You can get a bayonet and put the base of the bayonet in the ground, put the point of the bayonet there, and that will keep you awake. <laughs> take, it, take it from those who've done that. Um, they had fallen asleep on sentry duty at Sardis, really, and they had been captured twice. The idea of keeping awake then was in the national psyche there, and Jesus says this is where revival or new life begins. Don't think you're secure. Realize the temptation to compromise. Wake up. So, if people are young, for example, younger, wake up to the temptation to compromise with the world among your peers. It's very hard. I know what it's like to be in a minority of one on occasions. Here's one student quoted on the internet. When everyone's drinking too much and they're wanting you to drink too much, it's hard saying no. Yeah, it is. If you're older, wake up to the temptation to compromise with the world at work, whatever line of work you might be in. Wake up to the possibility of compromise. It can happen even within families, and that's difficult, and that's painful, and that's really challenging. Uh, one such family was Eli's family in the Old Testament. After initially opposing his sons, he gave in, and God had to say to him, 1 Samuel 2:16, why do you honor your sons more than me? So, wake up, wake up, be alert to that temptation, to that threat. Then he says, strengthen what remains to keep alive your spiritual life. This word strengthen in the New Testament used for encouraging new believers, young believers. When the apostle Paul and Barnabas were strengthening the disciples, they taught, we must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. Then he says, verse 3, remember, remember what you have received and heard. That could be a very useful thing for us to do individually, and maybe in the discussion time to share with one another, maybe if we're comfortable doing that, think back to when we first understood what it really meant to be a believer in Jesus Christ. Remember that new life and the reality of it. Remember the basics we were taught. Remember about the forgiveness of sins. Remember, if we have been compromising, that we may be forgiven for compromising. That relates to the fourth command in verse 3, to obey, to obey what we've received and heard, and then repent. We know what repentance is. It's what the prodigal son, the lost son, does. Having deliberately walked out of the father's house, gone away to the far country, wasted half the family inheritance, decides, I will arise and go to my father. At Sardis, they needed to repent, and we need to ask ourselves individually, do we need to repent this evening? He says, wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die, remember what you've heard, remember what you've received and heard, obey it, and repent. Secondly, be challenged and be encouraged by, and then follow truly godly people. Here, the few, the minority, are held up as an example to the others, the majority in verses 4 and 5. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who've not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white, a picture of purity, a picture of victory, for they are worthy. He who overcomes will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out his name from the book of life. I've said that very quickly, too quickly there, really. 
Think about that for a moment. Think about it as we discuss this all in a moment. I will never blot out his name from the book of life, but will acknowledge his name before my Father and his angels. If these Sardian Christians wake up and repent, life might be hard sometimes in the immediate present, but there's a glorious assured future in heaven. It's picture language, but the gist is clear. Christ can wash out the stain of every sin. We are assured, and this is in the question, uh, the suggested questions on the sheets, on the tables there, we are assured that we are safe with the Lord forever. And finally, but it's a really, really important finally, be filled afresh by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the life giver. Go back to verse 1. These are the words of Him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. The seven spirits seem to refer to the one Holy Spirit sent in His fullness to the seven churches. So, Jesus, in addressing the majority in Sardis, tells them that He is the bearer of the Holy Spirit. It was Jesus, after all, who had said in Luke 11, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? These folk at Sardis needed to pray afresh for a filling of the Holy Spirit. Who needs to pray like that this evening? Surely everyone, all of us, with no exceptions. And that prayer will always be granted. So, to conclude and recap, the Christians at Sardis, they had a good reputation in the city. They weren't being attacked, but they were not alive, but dead. Their deeds were not complete. Too much was missing. They were compromising. The way out of their mess was to listen and obey, to listen to and obey Jesus' commands to be challenged by and then follow the faithful few and trust Christ's promise of heaven, and finally to be filled afresh with the Holy Spirit. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches.